What's up, crew? Welcome to Filming in Progress, the show that takes you backstage into the world of local businesses and the people who make them shine. Meet Tyler Chisholm, whose career journey from commercial pilot to fitness entrepreneur ultimately led him to become the co-founder and CEO of ClearMotive Marketing. Today, as the driving force behind ClearMotive, Tyler combines creative flair with strategic vision, propelling the agency to remarkable growth and earning recognition as one of Canada's top new growth companies. Beyond ClearMotive, Tyler is endlessly curious, a successful podcaster, and a respected figure in the marketing landscape. Thank you. Uh, I'm really excited to get chatting. Where, can you give me some backstory as to who you are and how you got to where you are today? Who I am and how I got where I am today. What a random question. Well, I was born on a farm in southern Quebec. No, fast forward. Uh, I've been in, been in Alberta since 2000, moved out here to pursue a career in aviation, actually, all jokes aside. And 9-11 um, happened. My life took a different turn, but I fell in love with the province and I fell in love with the people. The openness, the entrepreneurial opportunities, which parlayed into starting a business, growing that business, selling that business, learning some valuable lessons with that, uh, finding my way into the agency game. So being a, a marketer, which is what I would call myself, marketer and a podcaster, actually. So we celebrated 15 years uh, at Clear Motive Marketing. So I'm the CEO and co-founder at Clear Motive Marketing. And I'm also the podcast host of two podcasts, They Just Get It and Collisions YYC, which are passion projects that have got completely carried away over the last couple of years, but I think have really come to become part of my identity. So that's who I am and what I do. And uh, I'm a marketer and I love telling stories. Amazing. Yeah, it's, uh, I read it everywhere on your bio and that sort of thing that you're really just curious. Where, where does <laughs> yes. that stem from? It's a learned skill over the past few years. I think it stems from just my constant uh, drive and like always want to learn. How does it work? How doesn't it work? Take it apart. I can look back at my room as a kid. There was like a, a, a bit of a boneyard of like, well, this is an amazing remote control car. I wonder how it works. I'm going to take it apart. Didn't always get it back together in that same way. But when I got into doing the podcasting, I think is when I really started to discover not only the value, but the power of curiosity. Before I started the podcast, I had a bit of imposter syndrome. I remember the first day my, my buddy kind of, anyways, long story, but my buddy kind of talked me into starting Collisions YYC, which has become kind of my main platform. And I still remember the moment. He's like, you need to talk to these business leaders. You need to talk to politicians. And I'm like, who am I to do that? And he's, and, you know, kind of gave me the speech about, you know, you got to take the chances and do the thing. And I very quickly realized that if I showed up on that show, without trying to be the expert in what that person was the expert in, but I was just really honestly, deeply curious. And I kind of joke, I fall in love with every guest because they are the expert on them. They're the expert in the life that they live in. And if I use curiosity to really go, wow, what about this? And come in from a place of authenticity, like legit curious, I can have a conversation with almost anyone and it'd be interesting. And I walk away feeling like, wow, I got something out of that, but so did they. Since then, I've really started to look at it like, what about curiosity if you show up as a leader that way and you're more curious about what your team around you knows versus showing them what you know and being open to new ideas. And it's really become part of my life in the last five years. And I credit the podcast for kind of opening it up and helping me realize it. Incredible. You, uh, you won awards at 12 or, or 11 or something like that for public speaking? <laughs> I did. Correct? I did. I think it was in grade six. So whatever, however old you are in grade six, um, I went to a small elementary school in Southern Quebec and my family... I grew up making maple syrup. So my great grandfather's, I think 1888 was the first time that like syrup was made. I grew up on Fertile Creek Road and on Fertile Creek Road, there was my grandfather, my great grandfather had a farm and then my grandfather and then my dad and they all made maple syrup. So I did a, I entered a public speaking contest at my elementary school on making maple syrup. And I remember my mom coached me and my mom helped me kind of put it together. And I remember being on the stage in front of the, the crowd and being like, like being expressive in a way that felt really uncomfortable. My mom really pushed me to do it. So yes, my first public speaking 
speaking, win was how to make maple syrup. <laughs> Incredible. So how did, how did you navigate that? Because you mentioned that you, you experienced imposter syndrome and now you're a podcaster, you're a public speaker, you run a marketing company. How do you navigate that and where, maybe where did that stem from? How do I navigate imposter syndrome specifically? I think it's ever present. I think over time, how do I navigate it is by, by taking action. Like you can be scared, you can be apprehensive, you can be aware. And I try to channel that into an energy that's like, okay, well, how do you be, how do you be more confident? Do more research, like understand who you're meeting with. Like I'm just using a podcast as an example, like really go in and be prepared and do your homework. But over time I've also started, I just turned 50 not long ago, which feels like a milestone of sorts. I made it this far. I start to also trust that I have a bit of a track record of like, well, it didn't blow up last time, so I'll probably figure it out next time. But I don't see, you know, I always joke, I don't consider stress a bad thing. I think imposter syndrome is a form of stress because it's an indicator like, you know, that the light's going off on the dash. Maybe I need to pay attention to what's going on here. What I don't let it do, and that's my own just sometimes blatant, aggressive, like I'm gonna push through even if I feel this way, is I don't let it stop me from doing things, but I certainly try to channel it and use it as an indicator. And I'll fill that up with my way of like, I'll do some more research or I'll talk to some more people, I'll get more information in. But I've noticed in the last couple of years, I've started to adapt a form of like, well, I can trust myself because it didn't blow up last time. Like I've got enough of a track record and I wanna look at that in a positive way. So it's been a layered approach. And lately it's a little bit more of like, oh, this is the butterflies. Okay, we'll get them to line up, fly in formation. Let's move forward. And it, it, it tells me I need to pay attention to things. It doesn't stop me from doing them. Mm. Wow. Are people ever surprised when you say that you, you experience imposter syndrome? Oh, <laughs> completely. <laughs> I remember a bunch of years ago, I'm chatting with my wife, who we were talking about confidence. And she says to me, she goes, I said, well, about being caught, I was coaching her a little bit, and this was many, many years ago when we were first learning. She goes, well, wh what do you know about this? You're always confident. I was like, whoa, wait. Don't mistake action for confidence. Underneath, oh man, the, the ducks are paddling, the butterflies are fluttering, whatever you, want to, whatever you want to call it. The difference is I take action, and people perceive that always as being confident. I guess to a certain degree, it, it's not that it's not that, but don't mistake that outward action as still not for a sense of like, Ooh, this is real, like, okay, I gotta, I gotta get focused, but I, I step into it versus step away from it. I think that's where that, oh, you're always confident, the, the myth or the illusion. It's almost like the Hollywood character, like, oh, they never question their actions. Of course they do, but they take them anyways. So that would be, that's the window inside. <laughs> right on. You mentioned this earlier, but aviation was a thing for you and a pilot at 16, is that correct? It was, yeah, I used to skip class and go rent a plane and then buzz my school. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> in hindsight, I recognize now where that might have been risky behavior, but it was a simpler time. It was many years ago. I got my private pilot's license and my driver's license kind of at the same period of time. So would you say that you've always been driven then? Is that, is that safe to say? Uh, yes. Always motivated, always wanting to perform, always wanting to do more, bigger, faster, more. Like definitely I think it's part of my DNA. Growing up in a rural environment, uh, I feel very fortunate that there was like almost limitless potential. I also came up, I have a very supportive family. What do you, what do you want to do? You want to get into aviation? Great. Well, let's let's go meet some, some people that are in that space or talk to pilots that my parents knew and learn a little bit about that. So my parents were incredibly supportive over the years. And looking back on it, of course you take it for granted at the time or maybe even resent them for who they are. But in hindsight, I had a lot of support that allowed me to test and try new things and being in a rural environment I think I grew up with a high degree of resilience and like uh, there's a lot of creativity in that environment like something I grew up on a farm so something breaks you have to fix it 
If like it's gonna rain tomorrow and you've gotta get the harvest done, you need to work a long extra day. Like there was a lot of resilience and a lot of resourcefulness that came out of that, which I think really fueled that drive of like, why, why can't I do it? Why, why can't I move forward? That on top of my own curiosity to just like see what's around the corner, I think has really layered up nicely over the years. <laughs> Amazing. And running a successful marketing company this many years later, uh, it's, it's integrally important because marketing is so on the, on the ball. You know, you have, to be, you have to be two steps ahead at all times, these sort of <laughs> things. Um, when you, you know, it's clear that you do that, but how do you instill those same values that you learned at, at a young age into your team to make sure that your team is kind of behind what you're, what you're looking to do? Well, it starts with understanding what they are. You know, be helpful, be accountable, be resourceful, be curious to learn and speak up. Those are our values at Clear Motive. I mean, you'll notice a theme with a lot of those is they're very observable behaviors. So we try to identify that very early in the process. I don't have any illusion or any belief in my superpower to go, if you don't already kind of show up a little bit that way in your life and I'm all of a sudden going to instill that in you, what we do from a hiring perspective is really try to ask questions and have dialogue that lets some of that show up. And then, like, leading by example isn't the best way, it's the only way. So do it, live it, bring it up, repeat it, repeat it. I had a politician say the other day, he said, Tyler, you know your message, your message is getting through when your constituents are starting to get annoyed with you. Up to that point, they haven't even heard a word you say. <laughs> Sounds aggressive from a leadership perspective, but I find a lot of leaders, even myself, well, we've already worked on that, everybody knows. Oh, but there's a new employee. There's a new team member. We haven't mentioned it in a while. So we keep bringing it up from a, like, oh, how were we accountable there? Or how did our res lack of resourcefulness maybe hurt us? And from a lessons learned perspective, you wanna look at both sides. We've really found when we have projects that aren't successful, it's often that one of those observable behaviors was missed or you were busy. And it, it's not about perfection, it's about consistency. So we try to bring it up and instill it as part of our dialogue and make sure it's part of our workflow and just making sure at minimum that we talk about it on a regular basis, not as a punishment or a reward, but this is the way it is, this is what we aspire to do. And when it works, let's celebrate it. And when it doesn't, let's address it and let's fix it and, and move forward. But it, it's not about perfection, it's about consistency. Have you always known to lead that way? Or was that like a learned skill kind of along the way? Oh no, when I first started the leader, I thought that leading was putting up those posters of like, we can win as a team and the picture of the people rowing. And I had no clue of what leadership was. I grew up in a world where <clears throat> the people that were leaders weren't called leaders, they were, the, they were your dad, they were your uncle, they were the guys that you worked with kind of growing up. And often leadership there was like, I know how to do the thing better than you, so just follow me and do it. And I might even give you a hard time if you're not as good at doing the thing. So I didn't grow up with any overwhelmingly positive leaders. I grew up with some role models of some people with high degrees of integrity and a high capacity for work, and that's what was valued in that environment. So you learn very quickly, if you want to be valued, you get in line with this way of doing it, which, from a formal perspective, it's definitely been over the years of, of, of realizing that you know, your amplitude is more valuable than the posters you put on the wall. How you act, how you show up for your team. Are you a servant-based leader or are you like, let me just show you the best way because I'm awesome? I maybe grew up around a little bit of that, realizing very quickly that that isn't how it works. <laughs> I remember way, 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 way back, the early days of Clermoto, so probably year one or year two, we did a book club internally and I still remember because it was such a newsflash for me where all of a sudden this wasn't about work. It was, uh, uh, it was in Napoleon Hill, Laws of Success. So it was one of the original kind of self-help books, Napoleon Hill being around since like the 30s. But it wasn't had to do anything with work. It just had to do with helping to elevate them, our team, at just being better at humans. You could like go home, we'd read a chapter, we'd come back in and we'd talk about it. How does this show up in your life? And all of a sudden I saw this huge uptick in culture and morale in people's willingness to participate. I'm like, wow. I wasn't trying to make them better at work. I was just helping them to be better people. And I got this huge positive return from a 
from a leadership objectives perspective. I still remember it as the first moment that hit me that I'm like, oh, if you invest in them as people, then all of a sudden they'll actually like invest in your organization, not versus going, how do you be better at work and being so task oriented. And it seems funny to tell that story now, but I still remember that that was the moment where you can read about it, but that's the moment I got it. <laughs> Interesting. Do you, do you maintain those values still today throughout your organization? I would like to think so. As you should probably talk to some of my team. It's hard for, you know, if you want to know, if you want to know how you're leading, ask the, ask the people that you're, that you're, that you're leading. Um, for me, over the years, it settled into a lot more level. I think the more comfortable you become with yourself, the more of an opportunity you have to be the leader who you actually are. Because we look at other leaders and go, I'm going to lead like that, or I'm going to read a book and read this way, which is very different. Is very challenging. We're all, you can't really play a role. <laughs> Sooner or later, it's who you are, your comfort with yourself, your willingness to be wrong, your willingness to, that, to, to grow as a, as, a, as a human. And then you put yourself in a position where like, okay, I'm going this way. You all said you want to come with me. Like there's going to be times where we might have tough conversations, times when it's really easy, but I'm going to show up authentically as me, whatever version that is. I think that's the key to it all. And I think that for me, that's just been a bit of a journey of time. Yeah. Awesome. You, uh, you mentioned you had role models when you were young. Um, I'm curious as to, are, do you have mentors these days? Is, is, are, you, you know, are you a mentor to other people? Do you have mentors that you kind of speak with on a regular basis? What does that relationship look like? Yes, is the answer to all that. <laughs> I joined an executive peer group in 2010. I joined tech, the executive committee, because I said, you know what, I need to raise the bar. And it's easy to get into a little bit of an echo chamber. You're in a small company, you're the leader, and you've got all the answers. And put yourself, all of a sudden, I was, found myself in a room of 12 other leaders. I was the youngest and the smallest business. For six months, I had imposter syndrome of like, why am I, I, I shouldn't be in this room. Uh, I always joke, I had conversations above my pay grade. I aspired to have the types of challenges these business leaders had. Every single one of them, I would have considered a mentor. Every single one of them, I would consider an advisory board member, impromptu, if you will. And since then, uh, that's only, I've been, was in that group for six years, got out for a couple years, then went back in. So I'm currently in another group now. And I'm a little bit older, I have a little bit different experience, and it's much more of a peer environment. But it's a room where confrontation is a big part of their, their DNA. So someone will call you and say, hey, I appreciate this issue, but I see a blind spot here. I'm going to call you on it with the goal of supporting you. So I've always put myself in those environments. I play that. It's funny. I had a conversation with a friend of mine this morning. And we got to the end. And I said, hey, can I give you some advice? And she's like, oh, absolutely. And, and I, so I kind of made a comment. And I was like, ah, it's a bit, it feels a bit aggressive. She goes, I consider you someone I trust. I consider you a coach. So thank you for that. So it's funny. Do I, do I mentor people? Yes, but it's in those informal, formal environments where you have enough comfort to say, hey, like, I got to call something out here. Like, you kind of belittled yourself a little bit in the story. And I think that's misplaced. Like, I think that narrative is actually hurting you. And I think it's untrue. And she's like, wow, like, thank you for mentoring. She used the word mentoring. And I was like, I was just, it, it wasn't mentoring for me. It was just kind of being there for someone that, you know, I know she has my back and I had an opportunity to have hers. And I've always filled myself my life is full of people smarter than me at who they are, and I value their perspective of me from the outside. Even when I started the podcast, I'd had a handful of friends that would be like, hey, you know what? You're going on a little bit long here. You should dial that back. Or, hey, you're kind of over-explaining. Dial that back. And it really helped huge. At the beginning. It was hard to hear. She's like, oh, that was great. Except for that little part where I wasn't. <laughs> and uh, so I think it, I've also got more comfortable with that and less threatened by it as I've gotten older. Yeah. It's really cool to hear that you've been in those groups uh, in whatever capacity for so long. I feel like so many entrepreneurs need that and they don't realize it until they're like, you know, they're looking for a mentor or they're looking for a group or whatever the case may be, but it's all recent. I find it's been mm. a recent thing, you know, since COVID or whatever the case may be that kind of prompted them to go do this thing. Everybody needs support. Everybody needs to be able to talk to somebody who's at least been through something similar in the past. Right? And it's amazing, I find, 
people are so willing to do that for you. Like people are like, oh, you know, I'm scared to reach out or I don't want to call these people. I'm like, that's a, that's a story you're telling yourself. When you ask somebody for help, it is like, I can count on one hand the times that the person didn't say yes. And it wasn't even that they didn't want to help. There was just some some circumstance in their life. But I, and I, again, I'm a little bit biased because I think Western Canada's got an awesome vibe that way. But people's willingness to support each other in this in this town, if you're willing to ask, I think is like as high as anywhere. Mm -hmm. I've also heard that uh, through helping others, so through mentoring, if you will, uh, you actually learn things yourself. Is that true? Have you experienced that? It's amazing what you learn when you hear your own words. Because where you're, you know, to, to articulate something, you have to think it through. And I, you know, I'm in a situation I'm observing, and it's so freeing sometimes because you're not in it. So you don't have the same emotional hook. You bring to me a situation where maybe you're in a big, like, drawn out battle with an employee or a landlord, or you got a client that owes you money or something happened. You bring it to me, and I can now go, hey, here's what I did when I had a similar situation, but I'm not emotionally invested, but I still could be invested in you. That's such a valuable position when even you walk away and go, huh, yeah, that's a fresh perspective because I didn't have the emotional noise that sometimes can cloud your own judgment. So I've found from that perspective, I do really value it because it forces me to think through my thoughts, maybe without all the biases that are floating around when it's my issue <laughs> or a similar issue that I went through. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Uh, at 27, you said you were unemployable. <laughs> Why is that? So many reasons, and you talked about mentors. I think you can learn a lot from people in what you should do, and I think you can learn a lot from people in what you don't want to do. So I had a series of uh, situations. I'd probably say it's a little bit older than that, so I don't. maybe I quoted myself somewhere on that. Uh, it was probably a few years after. Oh, I got here at 26. It was probably 28. It was probably before I was 30. I'd worked in a few environments where I'm like, wow, I don't like how you treated people. I don't really like how you did that. Um, you made decisions that negatively impacted. This is the control freak in me. Your decisions negatively impacted me, and I didn't have any say in the matter, and I would have never made that decision. I'm like... This isn't cool. If I'm gonna drive into a tree, I wanna at least be driving. I don't wanna be in the back seat watching it happen. And so I had a few examples of mentors in my life that showed me ways in which I didn't wanna show up. I believed you could do better. Some of it was ignorance, some of it was just brute force, some of it was like, screw this. Like, and I grew up with a high degree of that, that resilience and that resourcefulness. I wanted to take it for a test drive, so yes. That, and I had a good friend of mine say to me, she goes, well, Tyler, you, know, you are unemployable. And I was like, it's the nicest thing you ever said to me. So it was a mentor who said that to me. But I think it also came, stemmed from seeing a lot of examples of how I didn't want to be and how I didn't want to really be associated. It was a misalignment of values, mm -hmm. which pushed me to do my own thing. Right, right, among other things we've discussed. So, so the, the, first, uh, the first business, what was it? Um, the first business that I started on my own when I moved back to Calgary, so I was down in LA for a little bit working for a company down there that did nutrition and fitness and so that what kind of got me into that world. And I came back to Calgary and it was a personal training and nutrition business that I started back in probably in its first iteration, probably 03, 04, and ran that to about 07, 08, and then kind of exited that business, but built an online nutrition portal, built a whole team of coaches, a whole team of personal trainers, opened a, kind of a high-end personal training and weight loss center, and really fell in love with the power of branding and creating community and not even knowing how to use, I don't, those weren't the words I was using back then, these are words I've used after, but it was such a tight-knit group of people that really shared the value of, they'd work out together, they'd play together, we had amazing staff events, we did fundraisers, it was a really cool culture that we built around this very niche kind of almost boutique style brand. Mm. Awesome. So, so public speaking to aviation to fitness to marketing. I wouldn't say public speaking. I was 12. Like, let's be clear. Like, that was in school. I've done more public speaking since then, but I do that, I do that for fun. Um, 
during the first business, my current business partner, Chad, who I've been working together for, I've been working with Chad at Claremont for 15 years, but we've been working together since about 03, 04. It's my story about never refuse a cigar from a stranger at a backyard fire pit party, because <laughs> you never know if he's gonna become your business partner. So back in 03, um, I think maybe even 02, I was dating my wife at the time, my wife and my business partner now had gone to the same school in a different grade, but we ended up at the same backyard party, short story. And he sits down beside me and he goes, hey, I'm Chad, I go, I'm Tyler. He goes, do you want to smoke a cigar? I'm like, not really a big cigar guy, but I'm like, sure, let's do that. What do you do? I do, I'm graphic designer. I'm like, oh, I need, I need a logo. He's like, I can do your logo. So from that cigar and from that interaction, Chad and I actually started working together. I was his client for quite a few years, from probably 03 all the way till 07 when we decided to start the agency. Um, but slowly started to fall in love with the power of marketing and brand through that first business and was actually working with my, my to-be business partner at that time as one of, as one of his clients. So that's kind of how that big transition happened over... It sounds quick, but it was over quite a few year period of time. Wow. Um, you mentioned also, which is something I find super interesting, is relationships are earned. It's uh, it's such a it's such a you know short short and sweet you know sentence or term or whatever the case may be, but um, it's so powerful as well. What do you mean by that? I think you got to put in the time, and I think you got to do the work. And a lot of people say that. Oh, that sounds like a negative. It should just be easy. When you meet people worth meeting, and like they're superficial, like I meet you and we get along and it's great, like that's fine, that's a relationship, but that's like a tier one relationship. If you wanna to get to like a tier 10, and I'm making this up as I go, I don't have this all mapped out somewhere, I'm like, who's at tier three today? But the time it takes to invest and the willingness to also like explore and like how do you be a good friend in that way? How do I take time to go, oh, I'll make time to spend time with you, I'll make time to be curious about your life. But also maybe, because in a good friendship, you usually run into snags along the way, where someone's like, oh, you, you get cross-threaded, as a buddy of mine likes to say. And it might be that like someone didn't do something that you thought was like, oh, we were gonna meet, and then you bailed last minute. Like, that's not super cool. Hey, that's how it made me feel. And the other person goes, oh, I appreciate that. Sorry, I was being selfish, I didn't realize. Won't happen again. Oh, okay, or this was my situation. And that level of earning it and building on it, and I think showing up, it's 100% takes two to tango, but you've got to lead by example on that one. Um, using your words, letting, you know, letting people know what's important to you, while simultaneously also being curious and caring enough about that other person, back to that confrontation, to also let them know when something goes offline. Because how quick, how, many, how often have we thrown away potentially good relationships? Because at some point early on, something didn't line up. Mm but we never give that other person the privilege of knowing that. Which it could have just, you don't also know what was going on in their life. So I think that earned it really falls into putting in the work and putting in the effort. And it is a two-way street, but you can only manage you. So show up and if that person goes, yeah, you know what, hey, thank you for being direct. This is what happened. You know, sorry, not sorry, whatever. In the case, it's not about sorry. It's about understanding and, 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 and appreciating. Man, you can build some really cool relationships like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, did you see carefrontation in there? Is that I did. a word you used? I did. Mm -hmm. Awesome, I love that. I've never heard that before, but I really resonate with that. I think, um, you know, yeah, you build relationships off of, off of really caring for that other person. I think if they're in the wrong, like you mentioned earlier, or if they can use support in, in some experience that you've experienced before, that, that yeah, that, that's huge. I love that. It's so, I almost feel like it's disrespectful. If like, if say we have a mutual acquaintance, and something happens with you, and then all of a sudden you share it with me. The first thing I'm gonna say is like, well, have you told them? Well, no. I'm like, whoa, okay, this sounds a lot like gossip and not like actually building a good relationship. And it's easy and it's human and it's not to fault it. But man, if I'm, I learned that when I, when I moved to Alberta, I had a little bit of a, of a rude awakening. In Quebec, people are very, they're very, very direct. And say, say you and I had a misalignment on something, we'd probably yell at each other, but then we go have a beer after and it's, it's over. 
Here, all of a sudden, I'm like, oh wow, people talk around you, they don't talk to you. And that's a broad statement. People might be like, whoa, wait a second, it's not like that. I felt that very much here when I first moved here because I was very direct and I found that it was always met with, I might've been a little bit aggressive with my direct and called it, no, I'm just being direct. Maybe I was being an asshole. Um, I was also 26 at the time, so I, 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 I make apologies for any behavior I might've had at that time. But it was a different bit of a cultural, like what was acceptable or not to be direct with somebody. And I feel it's more disrespectful to tell me about something that you're upset about with that person than, than tell them. But it takes the bravery. And if you don't care about, if you care, if you say you care about that person, then it kind of behooves you to, t to talk to them about it. If you don't really, then don't say you do if you're not willing to do that. And I think that's a blurry line and something again that over the years of practice, I've found yields as much better results than certainly telling five people about the problem and not telling the person. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's interesting, you mentioned the, the, uh, the difference in you know, Eastern versus, versus uh, Western. Do you find, is that hard to navigate? Is it, you know, if you're dealing, let's say with a client or something like mm -hmm. that over on the East Coast, um, do, you do you deal with them differently than you would over here? I would say not, no, because I am who I am, but at the same time, always know your audience, right? And like, we're marketing, who's your audience? Talk to them in a language that they, that they understand or that they appreciate. And I do find that there's some differences. I'm, I, become an, I became an Albertan a long time ago, so I've, like, I remember it was about five years, I went back to Montreal, and I was walking around, and I'm like, I am not from here anymore, I am a tourist. That is a weird feeling. <laughs> so sometimes when I still go back to Quebec every summer usually to hang out and get friends and family back there. And they're even on that level, I'm like, oh, this is different. And then my behavior switches a little bit. I do find from a client perspective, I wanna respect who they are and how they wanna communicate. If, but that could be here. It doesn't mean you don't have people here that don't want direct and in your face. And they're, if someone's a little bit aggressive or it comes off as aggressive, my team is like, oh, I didn't like that. And I was like, well, let's, maybe that's just who they are. Like don't, kind of the, what is it, for, don't take it personally, for agreements. So I think there's a little bit of that. I think always respect who your audience is and you know, at the same time, don't take it personally, take it for what it is, peel the emotion off of it and move forward. Easy to say sitting here when there's no stress. But when you're in the moment, I think also just respecting that the way they acted might not be how you're interpreting it. And it's nice we're pretty sure what someone meant when really we don't really know. <laughs> yeah, totally. I feel like also that's kind of amplified by um by you know the digital culture that we're in right now, right? Which is you know we're, we're speaking a lot more via email or text or whatever the case may be, rather than face to face like we are right now. Um, when you when you know when your business went into COVID, how did that affect you, and how did you navigate that? You know, going fully online. If I'm correct, you 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 are still all of your staff are remote, correct? Yeah, they are. Yeah, we we went we we were forced into it like everybody else. We had one advantage from a technology perspective back in 2013 during the floods. We were out of our office for I think 45 days. So after that, we really upped the game on all of our technology, cloud-based access to everything. So we had a little bit of a leg up where we very quickly were able to transition from just workflow, step one. We had a lot of tools in place at the time that, would, that allowed us to communicate more effectively, like Slack, like Asana, those types of things. Um, were we using them to their full extent? No. So very quickly as we got into COVID and we're all working from home, basically we all went home on a Friday, I think Friday the 13th, and by Monday, everyone's like, how long is this gonna last? Nobody said three years. Um, at that point, we really, we had touch bases, we moved to a scrum model, we had uh, culture connects, we just threw a whole bunch of like, at that point we said, What's our culture during this time? It's to make it easy, dot, dot, dot. Make it easy to communicate, make it easy to feel connected, make it easy to know what you need to do that day, make it easy to feel like you actually got the work done you needed to get done. And then we started to look at everything through that filter of like, does this make it easy to do the thing? If it doesn't, let's not do it, kick it out. So does it, how does it make it easy to make people feel like they're still part of something? You know, my office manager, she challenged me, she goes, Tyler, 
you used to go to Toronto because we had a team in Toronto, and you take and you take people out for coffee just to catch up. She goes, "Why aren't you doing that virtually?" This is about six months in. I'm like, "Why am Why aren't I doing that virtually? I don't know." So I started actually sending each team member a ten dollar coffee card, and then booking a, an appointment in their calendar for a thirty minute chat. And we did not hardly talk about work at all. It was rare. They wanted to bring it up, they could. That's not what it was. I had to kind of teach people that. When the CEO throws a calendar appointment in your calendar, it's not because something bad is happening. Because at first there was that like, why does Tyler want to meet with me? So we once we cleared that, and the second round, I had a group of people, probably about forty percent of them, they sent me a coffee card before I had a chance to send them one. So it, like those were the small things that sound so minuscule, but had such a positive impact for us to stay connected. And I'll be honest, we had some team members leave. They said, you know, we don't like this. We want to go back to the office. We want that. They self-identified. And so did we. Nobody was wrong. Everyone was right. And when we looked at any new hires, we were very clear that this is who we are. And usually, the question we got is, "Is this really who you are? Or are you going to trick me and force me back in the office in three months?" So we attracted a group of individuals that were remote first people that self-selected. So there, I think there's a willingness to also participate and almost quote unquote over communicate, knowing that the upside of that is the freedom and the lifestyle and all the benefits that they had, which. I think has improved drastically our ability to manage our workflow. We use the platforms way more effectively than we did in the past. So I argue COVID solved some of my problems. Problems being the two office challenges of communication. In a week, what I couldn't solve in two years prior. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Awesome. You said in there,、uh, you sent coffee cards, and then you would have conversations that were, you know, primarily not work related.、Mm-hmm. Um, I'm I'm interested in knowing your thoughts on kind of is is there a line you know with employees and that sort of thing where it's like personal first or work first or how do you obviously work first how do you navigate that? How do you mean in in what context from a relationship perspective yeah, from, from a, relationship a time of day perspective relationship perspective? It's a really really good point. I've had this conversation. It's a good question. I should say I've had this conversation with a good friend of mine, senior HR consultant, and she's like, "Don't learn too much. Don't take on the baggage. Don't hear the story. Don't like be careful. <sighs> Still got to be human."、Mm. And I would say, like, don't dig too deep. Like, it's not like like we're not best friends, and that's okay. We don't need to be best friends. Nor do I want. But I want their like. For me, it's about mutual respect, about caring about that individual. It's not to learn every dirty detail about their about their life. So I know what my intentions are going in, and it's usually like, oh, what what do you folk, what are you working on, or what's important to you, or you know, how's things at home, or what's one of the biggest challenges? Is there any way like I used to always ask, what can I do to make it easy for you to feel more successful at your job? So then we talk about that.、Uh, my desk isn't great. Great. What do you need? What can we can we get you a chair? Can, so a lot of it did resolve around that without really being directly about that. And you kind of like I found out that、um, some of our team loved gardening. I found another team loves drinking wine and making wine.、I、found another one team loves going on vacation. So we found some common ground to chat about that I would say wasn't super deep and personal, but was still. Individual to them, as you know, hello, Kevin loves gardening. We get on the phone, Kevin. What are you planning in your garden? Like we still, like three years later, I know what he's going to be planting in his garden this year. So personal, but not really. And I think that was my job to navigate that in a way that allowed me to get connected, let them feel like I actually gave a shit about them as a human because I do, without getting into the personal nitty gritty. Right? We're not we're not best friends. We're coworkers, but you're still human, especially during a trying time. What can I do to like, allow you to feel connected and? I'm curious. Back to come full circle. So for me, finding out just like what they're into, what they're not into, even what their goals are, even if it's work or just like a lot of our team are creative, so they're very passionate. Like, what are you passionate? You're passionate about video. Like, what are you doing to learn more? How can we support that? So it wasn't about, not about work, but it was still about them. Back to my original、um, story about Napoleon Hill. It was much more about what they cared about in their life. Not what I cared about because they worked for me,、mm-hmm. and I think that's how I navigated that. And、uh, it didn't. It wasn't a master plan. It just felt natural. Awesome. 
Um, how important is, is personal alignment, like your, your personal values with your business values? And, and how do you, how do you Ooh, ensure that those, um, you know, because it's, it's important to, if you want to get fulfilled by, by what you do every day, right? It's important that you, you personally align with that value. Um, so I'm curious as to how you kind of make sure that, you know, your day-to-day -day work that you're doing every day uh, with your team, with your marketing business, that sort of thing, um, fulfills you at the end of the day and aligns with your personal values. I think there's a balance because I think that's a myth that every single project has to fulfill you some upper higher level activation. But the people you work with and the way you work, it better align or it's gonna burn you out really, really fast. Like we work with some clients that am I the most passionate or most excited about their product? I am because I'm really curious, but at the end of the day, sometimes we're just selling a product for them. It's important and even the name Clear Motive comes from the concept of every customer has a motive and every client has a motive. And if you can align those two together, not only do you have a great client-customer relationship, our job is to come up with the story in the middle that allows that to happen. And I always joke that, you know, I met an individual at a motorcycle show years ago, and he's an older gentleman, he just retired, and he was buying a Goldwing. If anyone's familiar with it, it's like Honda's flagship. It's this big, it looks like a Chesterfield on wheels. And it's a beautiful motorcycle, and guys that are retiring and they want to go ride across the country, will ride this motorcycle. And I chatted with this individual, and he's like, I've been collecting brochures from these shows for like 20 years. And he goes, I'm here to buy the bike today. There is nobody happier than Honda and there's nobody happier than that guy to come together to buy that, to buy that motorcycle. The content that we put in between helped that happen. That was an amazing moment. But all the work that came to make those brochures and do that, like it was for me much more about how we worked, how we got it done, how we aligned with each other. But because Clear Motive ultimately, marketing sometimes gets a bad rap, like, ah, oh, you guys are manipulating. So at the end of the day, if you're connecting someone with something that matters to them, it might not be something you're excited about. You might not be excited about that motorcycle, but man, that customer is. <laughs> and if we can create a work environment that allows us to work with each other in a way that meets those crazy deadlines and deals with the too, the too many edits, and we still have each other back and values-wise we align, you can get away with a lot of projects that maybe don't blow your hair back because you like how you did them and the people you worked with. So I think that's actually more important than the execution. You still need some projects you're excited about, don't get me wrong, but to think it has to be every single one, I think that's getting sold a little bit too hard right now and it's setting a lot of people up like, oh, I'm just not satisfied at my job. It's still a job, but how is it with people you work with? How do you feel showing up? Do you feel undermined? Do you feel supported? Do you feel like you've got a, the, the friend at work mindset? That I think can overshadow sometimes parts of our jobs that it, it's okay that it's just work. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you, I, your curiosity value though is, is throughout that entire process, you know, you're, coming up with the story, designing the content, whatever the case may be, is is ultimately feeding your true value, which is curiosity. 100% it is, yeah. Yeah, mm. yeah, awesome. It's so much based on like that, it's like I get to live in a living, breathing case study. So people are like, what's the best thing about, someone asked me just recently on, a, on an interview kind of set up like this, what's the favorite part of your job? I'm like, it's living in a case study every day. And the more curious we are, especially at the onset, the better our insights, the better the outcomes. I can learn often about a business, I'm like, oh wow, like that's how that works, that's how you make money. Like to be a true, to be a marketer successfully, like I don't know how you do that without being truly curious. And curious beyond just the marketing, but curious about that business. And I think that's where Clear Motive is always differentiated. My business partner and I are legit interested about the business. Yes, we're gonna get to marketing, but if we can't understand how you work and how, like what makes you profitable, what's not, what does success look like, who's your customer, what do you know about them, how did you design this project product to be perfect for them, eventually that'll get to a campaign or a website or a video or whatever the case may be. But if you, that's the fun part, like that's actually the part I love the most. The output is great and I love it, but our team does most of that. I love that part. 
because you kind of go in not knowing what you're going to find. And that's, there's a lot of fun in that. <laughs> Having a business partner uh, doesn't come without challenges. Um, and I'm sure based on the things that we've already discussed, yeah. you know, I'm sure you guys handle it very well, you know, your challenges that you go through. Um, but in general, there's a lot of cases where, you know, they just don't work out because there maybe people aren't addressing them uh, correctly or whatever the case may be. Um, what are some of the strategies that two, the two of you use to, to ensure that, you know, you're maybe you're not always aligned 100%, but you're moving in the right direction for the business? We are always aligned from a values perspective. We are never aligned on how we look or approach that situation, which is the strength. The values was, is what allows that to work. The way we look at the world, the way we identify or look at a situation, I guarantee he will look at it different than me. Where we've always thrived is in our ability to communicate. And there's no such thing as over-communication in a business partner. It's a, it's a business marriage. <laughs> like, let's not get ourselves. We joke. We've been married for, you know, we were dating for probably 20 years and we, for five years and we've been married for 15. My wife laughs. His wife laughs about it. Because we communicate and we take that time and we also plug ourselves out of the business. A piece of advice I will give very early on, there's, it's never equal. So early on in the business, we would have, I was the CEO, he was the creative director. He reported to me in the business, which some people laugh, like, oh, it's not really like that. You know, you're both, that's not how it works. This is how it worked. But then we would have shareholder meetings where we would talk about the CEO and the creative director. Like we would be very almost animated about it. Like, okay, we're going to take a drive to Canmore on a Friday afternoon. We're going to go for a hike and we're going to talk about the business as a shareholder perspective. Are we happy with performance? Where do we think it should go? How's the CEO doing? How's the creative director doing? And we almost, it was almost a parody because early on in the business when kind of everybody's doing a bit of everything, I think that's where you can really step on a lot of toes and doing that work of getting clear of what's your role, what's my role, what's our hierarchy in the business. But maybe we're both owners or maybe we're not. We went 50-50 on the business very, very early on, and I'll give kudos to my business partner for that. I remember I was, I was, it was 60-40, and we did that for a few months, and he called me one day, he goes, man, I, want to, I need to talk about something. I said, okay. Go to his office, he's like, listen, I don't ever want to think about it. I just want to be all in. And he goes, 60-40 doesn't work, so how about 50-50, and we never talk about it again. And that was 14, 14 and a half years ago. And everything from compensation to workload to effort to you're going on vacation, I've got your back, I'm on vacation, you have your back. That 50-50 relationship, I know that's not always ideal. People are like, oh, it's problematic. You need 51, 49. We made it work because we both signed on for that and agreed to it. And then basically communicated our way through every, anytime there was a challenge. And there's been life stuff and you went through a divorce. And like there's been so many things happen that are just the course of the journey of life. But we always had each other's back and we always knew that at the end of the day, I got you, you care about the business as much as I do or more or I care about more than you do at different times. And it really, really worked. But communicate, communicate. And then when you think, you haven't communi when you think you've communicated, communicate some more. <laughs> it's really complicated to look at the, you know, so CEO, creative director, and then go into a board meeting and, you know, look from a third, third party perspective yep. objectively. Yes. Uh, would you attribute the success in you two doing that also to communication? To being able to even set that up? Absolutely. Very early on in my life, I took um, a training called NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming. And part of what you do is first, second, and third position. Like for what camera one, camera two, like this is me having a conversation with you, but what if I put myself over there and had a conversation back? What if I put myself in the corner of the room and had that? So we used a lot of that framework early on to be like, okay, we're kind of into, into it. Let's just switch positions. And you kind of, so we, like I say, I say theater or parody, we really were overt about it early on to kind of learn the behavior. And we were both willing and we wanted to play around with it. So there was some specific tactics that we used that were literally just stuff we made up and we worked through it. But being able to take on that other person's position and almost move around, like if we were in a meeting, we'd change seats and then have it that and we'd go to the shareholder seats. And 
I, we probably did that for a couple of years, but it was so exaggerated that it really left a mark, which to me, to your point, set the foundation for, the, for a long, long, very, to this day, our relationship's never been better and the company's never been running better. So it's, a, it's an amazing thing to go, well, I don't know if it was perfect, but 15 years later, it's working better than ever. That's awesome. <laughs> awesome. Um, what are some of the biggest challenges that you've faced over the past 15 years growing your business? Oh, everything about growing a business. I would say probably people, culture, um, clients, recessions. We started in a recession, COVID came, uh, over-reliance on certain clients, um, project-based work. There's so many things in a service-based business. You know, you have the gift of being relatively low overhead business, but you also get high risk in terms of like, what if this client goes away? What if you do a bunch of work and projects and then all of a sudden there's a dry spell? That ebb and flow has always been challenging, um, but that's just the nature of it. So I won't really chalk that up as like anyone in a service-based business goes, yeah, welcome, welcome to the game. Um, I would say culture and and, and people, no, no question has been the challenge. It's been our strength and our challenge. Like I, wanna, I don't wanna talk to you about it negatively because you gotta look at both sides. But when we won Honda back in 2011, we were nine people and we went to 20 people in six months. Those weren't all great hires. <laughs> we all of a sudden brought in a culture that was like, whoa, this was, there was some cattiness and then there was some backstabbing and then it was like, what is going on here? Like all of a sudden we both found ourselves in a company that neither of us actually wanted to work at. And that's a tough moment as a business owner where you're like, this isn't fun. Like, I'm not enjoying this. Like, this is kind of shitty. So, okay, let's put in some HR. Let's focus on hiring. Like, we made all the mistakes. That's the nice thing about being around for 15 years. If you get through it, you can say, hey, I made all the mistakes. I might make some of them again, but probably a lot differently. So I think people challenges, really understanding how to be deliberate about that culture. And none of us are mind readers. So hiring can be really, really tricky of like really starting to understand like this is what's important to us. And how do I recognize that in another person that isn't really just good at maybe interviewing? Or I'm not clear. Like I want to take responsibility for that. A lot of times companies hire without clear role descriptions, without a clear understanding of who they need for the role. They need the right now, but maybe not the right. And like it goes, it goes both ways. So we've got a lot better at the role descriptions, understanding the key results of that role, what that person's gonna be held accountable to, how to talk to them from a values perspective, to just listen. If you listen well enough, you can usually hear the type of environment they were in, where they, where they connected, where they didn't. And again, you get better at it, but it, it, it's, all, it's always a challenge. It will continue to be our biggest strength and probably our biggest source of challenge. Yeah. You mentioned in there, uh, you were both, you know, working at a company or, or running a company that you potentially didn't want to even be at. It's not so bad what you say about it. <laughs> but it, <laughs> but was a, know, it was a real feeling at the time, and I'd be lying if I didn't say that. Mm -hmm. But I, I think you're not alone. You know, it's, it's tough to say, it's tough to hear. Um, I think you're not alone. I'd, I'd be curious to know, kind of, besides, you know, the, the improvements that you made to your hiring and that sort of thing, and, and your culture that you obviously did make, um, you know, you mentioned now everything's amazing, which is awesome. How did you quickly change those things uh, fast enough to get to a point where, obviously if you're feeling that, probably all the other staff are feeling it as well. I don't know about quickly change it, but we changed it. When you're an entrepreneur, is it ever fast enough? Can I change this tonight and have it fixed tomorrow? Probably not, because these are longer complex issues. Like there's, you know, there's like level one problems, like I can deal with this tomorrow. And there's level two, three, four, where you're like, oh, this is gonna take months to fix. So first thing was, well, what's not working? Identify it. Because you can get really like run around with a gun and go, okay, I'm just gonna make changes. Like, you know, I'm just gonna slash here and cut there and shoot this and shoot that. And it's easy to get very, very reactive because you get so uncomfortable. You want change so fast. I think it's a bit of that human characteristic. Like long-term change takes time, but I want to do it with short-term solutions. Misalignment. So we really identified what we wanted from a culture perspective, what was a fit, what wasn't. We did some exercise around values and kind of re we've revisited that, that probably three years through the course of our 15, three times through the course of our 15 year cycle. I'm like, oh, we grew out of those values or maybe we should have some aspirational ones. And we changed our hiring practice. We also made some terminations. 
I'm not gonna lie, there's people that you need to make the hard decision of like, this doesn't fit. Does it make them wrong? No, but you can outgrow someone or they can outgrow you. That's okay. It's very learned early in my career. Like you don't have to make the other person wrong for it not to be the right fit. <laughs> and that's like, oh, this, something they did. No, 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 we're just no longer, we, hey, we should go date other people. We should break up. <laughs> and I think that's okay to admit that. I think it'd be really hard early on when you've got a team where everyone is like, these are personal relationships. These are humans, right? You can make it go, oh, firing, just do it. Like, it's never gotten easy for me. I always hate it. It's always shitty. I think that's good. That shows that I have my humanity still intact. <laughs> if not, then I would be a sociopath. Uh, but doesn't mean you should avoid it. It's like those tough conversations we talked about earlier. Like, and also, I think giving some very direct feedback. Like looking someone in the eye and say, listen, I'm about to have a conversation with you. It's incredibly serious. Your job is in jeopardy. Do I have your undivided attention? I've never had anyone not pay attention after I've said that to them. I got coached very early on from my friend in HR and she said, listen, most managers give such sloppy feedback and such soft, oh yeah, like you know what I mean? And you could kind of fix that thing and like wouldn't direct back to that caring. Once we switched to having, some people were like, oh, I didn't know. Okay, thank you for the feedback. I'll work on that. And they did. And then coach them and support them and don't just like make a big like bah, event about it, but follow up in a week. And, and we've had just as many people need to leave as we've had go, oh, I didn't even really realize. Thanks for that feedback. I'm gonna work on that. You know what, I don't like that either. I'm, if that's how I'm being perceived. Like, it's gone both ways, but the willingness to terminate, the willingness to be clear on what you're trying to do, like don't start doing those things until you're clear what you're trying to create, right? Because then it's just reckless. And second of all, like invest in your people, but be direct with them, be honest, give them the opportunity. And sometimes they self-select, like, you know what? This isn't just for me, and that's okay. We live in a world where people have lots of opportunities, and I think that's okay, you know? Our industry is prone for kind of maybe short employment cycles sometimes. Because maybe it's the work, maybe it's the culture, maybe it's the clients, but you're gonna learn every time you move. It's also just accepting that that's part of the journey. Mm. Do you change your communication style depending on who you're dealing with? <sighs> Slightly. Mm -hmm. I'm still me and I have a hard time not showing up, not showing up as me. But my direct, back to my original moving here, like that very highly direct, almost borderline on aggressive communication style, which I used to just chalk up as being direct, where sometimes I was being an asshole. I think I've absolutely softened that over the years and trying to mirror, try to match, try to match the tone, the, the pace of the speak. If I'm just myself, I'm fast, I'm quick, I'm, but it doesn't, it's not effective. And do I want to show up and just be that? Like I, a few years ago, my New Year's resolution was to be less self-indulgent. And when I get super aggressive and like really jazzed up, that's just me being indulgent. If I really want to get a message across, is that the best way or is that just me having fun being, being like, ah, like being a little bit fired up? So I think from that perspective, starting to be more, more, res more respectful of the message you're giving, well, you're still being you. I'm not going to be able to change it that much, but I can slow it down. I can be less aggressive. I can maybe listen more than I talk. So I think the short, the short answer is yes, but work in progress. <laughs> yeah, yeah, awesome. What do you do to recharge? You know, as a business owner, you're constantly going, you're constantly thinking, especially in marketing, you're constantly thinking about what's next. And mm -hmm. you know, you're thinking about your clients. It doesn't turn off. What, what do you do uh, to recharge? I have a lot of hobbies. As my wife has told me over the years, the more, when I have my hobbies, is when that's the best version of Tyler that shows up. So uh, very, very physically, physicality is a huge part of my life, whether it's, whether it's snowboarding, whether it's mountain biking, whether it's, you know, my wife and I recently just bought a real property. So now I'm in the chainsaws, which is really weird. I didn't see that coming. So I go down, I cut down trees on the weekend and that need to be cut down and I split wood and I hang out with my nephew and he comes with me. And so that physical outlet of doing something that has a tangible outcome. So when you live in your mind and you live as a knowledge worker and you're like working in a business, it's like, it's never done, right? You finish a project, but it just moves to the next project. So I found lately, I've been really attracted to things where like, I'm joking, I'm just picking on splitting wood because it's really what I'm into right now. <laughs> 
you don't have to split that wood again. Like you split it and it's done. You pile it and you have it. And then you have a fire and you sit around with your friends. And it's such a different um, expression of who I am and what I do. I find it incredibly recharging. My wife finds it hilarious. She goes, she's the only person I know that recharges by working harder. But it's completely different types of work that engages my physicality and my brain in a different way. I have a dog that I go for walks with. I do yoga. I work out. Um, I have tons of friends. I have a very large social circle. Um, the podcast I find recharging because I get to just show up and be super curious about another human being and help them tell their story. Like, I walk off every one of those episodes with a little bit of a buzz. <laughs> I, totally, I, to I totally do. And I found that work from home has provided, like, I feel like I'm semi-retired even though I'm busier than I've ever been. Just something about that environment or that energy and that ability, and I think the podcast plays a part because I connect with so many different people. I mean, more people now than when I was ever in the office. That recharges me in a way that I wouldn't have been predicted, but I can look back on it and say now, like I couldn't imagine having it not in my life because I'd be like, there's this huge hole. And being able to have a culture, like I said, it's the best it's ever been where we've got people that don't have the stress of commuting in downtown Toronto. They're excited about their work. They can work on clients anywhere in the country because it doesn't matter if they're in that city or not anymore. So we have a happier team. So a lot of my life has become more balanced and which gives me more time to fit in some of those other things that I think are just different. Like the, the more I do the same thing, the more I'll get, it'll burn, it'll burn me out. I've got to have some variety in, in my life and that's humans, it's tasks, it's going out to the country, it's living in the city, it's doing yoga, it's all the things. I don't get recharged by sitting around a lot. I'm pretty sure you picked that up in my, in, in my answer, but it's doing something different that allows me to kind of shake up my brain and create that break state or interrupt the pattern. I find that very recharging. Yeah. Um, you talked positively about having you know, your home office, which is, which is awesome. Uh, do you ever find it difficult though to kind of separate your work and, and your home life? Uh, you know, let's say you, you get a notification on an email while you're in the kitchen or whatever the case may be and you, you know, you're right there so you can go deal with it. I just deal with it. I feel it's a huge privilege. This is an owner speaking, let me be super clear. You can email me at 10 o'clock at night, I'll probably respond. Do I expect that from other people? Absolutely not, and I've communicated that with my team because you can really create a lead by example, like be very careful, so I don't want to say that with a huge like asterisk and respect. Mm -hmm. But you can message me anytime, I'm always engaged. Even when I travel, people are like, oh, what if I need to get a hold of you? I'm like, just message me, you can get a hold of me, it's not, it's not a big deal. I, I have no issue like living my life, making an amazing dinner for my wife while responding to an email, you know, uh, the odd time is something you're like, oh shit, this is, I gotta, this is not fun, I gotta really deal with this. <laughs> and every once in a while you're like, oh, I wish I hadn't seen that. So it does happen, I don't wanna paint that picture. I don't have really any issues. Like when I go work out, I turn my phone off. Like there's certain, like I do, I have no problem creating boundaries in, in that way. And I also have very much an owner that's still that entrepreneur in me. I'm like, oh, you message me anytime. Like no, no problem. Is it healthy, is it not healthy? So far it's working fine. If it changes, I'll change it. <laughs> Love it. What's next for you, Tyler? Oh, that's such an interesting question. Um, I'm really excited about Clear Motive going into 2024 for us. Like, we've had a fantastic last like 18 to 20 months, but we've been highly efficient, efficient and highly effective at delivering what our clients needed or what our clients wanted. And I say that very respectfully because we've been super busy. The team has been knocking it out of the park. We have an opportunity now to go, oh, we need to improve in a few areas. So it's planning. So you caught me right at the end of November, in December. So I'm getting into, we use OKRs, John Doerr's OKR model, and I'm getting into planning out our OKRs because our year starts February 1. I'm really looking at the areas of growth or where we want to improve from like digital project management to really using some of the tools and like engaging AI from rather than workflow and insights perspective. I'm really, really excited about laying out some of our OKRs for next year and taking this business it's amazing to be able to improve your business when you're coming from a place of strength, not from a place of like, oh shit, it's not working, I need to change it. And I've been through both versions of that. Like, oh, this is not good. Like, this is from a place of pain. 
this is growth from a place of positivity and there's something really energizing about that for all the obvious, obvious reasons. I'm gonna do a little bit of a retune on the podcast, focusing on broadening out our audience a little bit from broadening out our audience, but also our guests, like really bringing in a Western Canadian perspective. We went all in and you know, niche, 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 the message you all get, and we get oftentimes in business. We went all in on Collisions YYC, but very quickly, we don't live in a bubble or live in a dome. We're all connected. So with the BC, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, or even Northern Alberta, bringing in Edmonton, I really want to open up and I'm excited about the people I'm going to meet because I don't even know what I'm going to learn yet, but I know it's going to, it's going to be awesome. Um, I've been actually really exploring the concept of curiosity. So once a month, my social media manager holds me accountable. I write my big idea column where I really start to talk about curiosity and its role in leadership. I think it is a kind of under showcase. Everyone goes, oh, curiosity, yeah, curiosity is great. But how does it actually show up in leadership, especially in a time where new things are coming at you every day? Like you need to be agile. You need to go, I might not have all the answers as a leader. Geez, that's a tough one to admit. Maybe I'll just be curious and open it up. So I've been exploring that a little bit. and I keep getting bugged that I should write a book about it, which by a few a handful of friends. We're going to start by one article at a time. I think it's a much easier way to eat the elephant. So uh, working on that. And personally, I did mention uh, my wife and I just bought a rural property. So we bought 70 acres, about an hour outside of town. And that is a whole other like, where's that going to go? So we're going to build some stuff out there this year. We're going to spend time with family out there. And it's just kind of that road is, that path is evolving. And when you, buy, when you get involved in something that you've got a 10 or 20 year horizon, it just opens up this huge area of my life. So I don't even know where that's going to go, but I'm pretty excited about it. Awesome. Uh, I had a question that was just stemmed by, you know, your proactive approach to your, your, your 2024. Mm -hmm. um, as a marketing company, I often hear that, you know, uh, we do such a great job of, of marketing others, but we never know how to market ourselves. <laughs> That's a true story. Is that true? That is 100% true story for, for a lot of us out there. So one of my OKRs is actually taking something into our service offering because we're very much, we're, we're a full service agency with a heavy focus on marketing operations and execution. We will do strategy and we will do brand and we do a lot of it with our clients, but our our clients where we have the best relationship, it's we've been working with them, like we've been with Honda for 13 years now. High volume, hardworking, creative in a competitive sector that can often be commoditized depending on, every brand doesn't feel commoditized because they know theirs is unique, but the customer goes, oh, motorcycle's a motorcycle, a house is a house because we work in, in a home builder space. How do we then bring differentiation and a unique message to a highly cluttered, highly noisy world on an always on highly competitive structure? We do that incredibly, incredibly well. How do we showcase that in a way that's gonna allow us to attract new business? So part of our strategy is like, okay, how do we message that in a way that a customer from the outside can go, oh, actually that is what I need, that is what I'm missing. Because it's one of those services that it's really easy to prove your value when you're doing it. It's sometimes a little bit tricky to pitch it. So we are actually going through a little bit of drinking our own Kool-Aid, if you will, of telling that story going into, into 2024. And we did a bit in 22 with our uh, B2B marketing solution for industrial marketers. And it was fun actually drinking our own Kool-Aid and going and putting yourself, putting a campaign, spending some money on media dollars and putting yourself out there. And it sounds funny, but you're right. A lot of agencies spend so much time doing the work, maybe chasing awards, which has never really been our focus. We've always focused so much more on driving results for our clients. And our clients haven't been really rewards motivated, awards motivated. So it's always been about the business. Sometimes that story is a little bit harder to tell because there's confidential information and so on. So I think one of our challenges for this year is, you know, we've got a 15-year story. We're proud of who we are. We're confident. Like, you know, as an agency, being 15 is like the equivalent of being 100. You've survived. It's almost like dog years. We've got a story to tell, and it's uh, we've told it, but we can get a lot better at it. So yeah, you can you can count you can check back on me on that one. <laughs> Love it. And where can people follow you on your your thought leadership and your monthly dumps and that sort of thing? 
Oh, check him out. Go LinkedIn for sure. We have a LinkedIn newsletter there. You can also check me out on Instagram. But also uh, tylerschism.com. So I spun up a website, which always seems a little bit egotistical to have your website, but I've had all this content that I was starting to accumulate. I'm like, I need to bolt it somewhere. So go to tylerschism.com. There's some, uh, we do On My Mind, which every month when we do an article, we post it up there and we have some fun with it. But yeah, by all means, and uh, from a podcast perspective, check out They Just Get It and Collisions YYC. Collisions, they just get it is fun. And I talk to just anybody like, I'm so curious. I meet somebody who's just doing some crazy. I had a, a pet medium on recently. Incredibly interesting, her insights about talking to live or deceased pets. People are like, why would you? I'm just, I was so curious about somebody who does that for a living and does quite well at it. Has clients all over the world. To Collisions YYC, where we're really leaning into economic transformation across Alberta and soon to be moving into BC and Saskatchewan for Collisions West. Amazing. Awesome. Thanks, man. This was fun. Thank you so much, Tyler. Is there anything else you'd like to uh, plug or mention before we wrap up? Uh, I think just a, a huge hats off and thank you. This is such a representation of the amazing community that we have where if you focus on abundance and not scarcity and you share and you support each other, it raises us all up. It sounds a little bit kumbaya, but I also believe it's very true. So thank you for this. No, thank you so much.